So we're going to be in Matthew, we're going to be in Isaiah 7 and Matthew 24. But we're first going to start in Luke 24 because I want to bring to you a concept that all God's revelation from Genesis through the book of Revelation, all of it ultimately points to Jesus. And the Old Testament has 39 books. The New Testament has 27 books. Those 39 books of the Old Testament, which were written as as much as 1,500 years before Christ by Moses, some of them, the first five books, all of them in some way are pointing to Jesus. So we're going to start with the story of Jesus' resurrection in Luke 24. And after he had raised from the dead, he, he was, um, well, it was that, maybe that day or the day after, he actually meets two men walking on the road to Emmaus. Emmaus is seven miles from Jerusalem. And Jesus was, was crucified, buried, and rose again in Jerusalem. And then sometime that afternoon, Jesus is on this road where these two men are walking from Jerusalem back to their hometown in Emmaus on the seven-mile walk, and Jesus approaches them. And one, one of them is named Cleopas, the other one doesn't give us his name. And they're talking, and Jesus walks up and says, what are you guys talking about? And they're a, bit, they're a bit shocked. What do you mean? Are you the only one in Jerusalem that doesn't know the things that happened there? That's what they say to him. Just kind of, you know, where have you been? You born in a barn? So 2419, we're going to start there. Oh, he was, wasn't he? That was totally unintended. Yeah. <laughs> Gosh. It's funny how you throw yourself off. Now I don't know what I'm going to say. So, and he said to them, what things? And they said to him, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet mighty in deed and word before God and all the people. And how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were in the tomb early. They were at the tomb early in the morning. And when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb, which was Peter and John, we learned from the other Gospels. Peter and John... Some of those who were with went to the tomb and found it just as the woman had said, but they did not see him. I looked up and lost my place. Thank you very much. And he said to them, oh, foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe, all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? Here it is. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Beginning with Moses and all the prophets. So Moses wrote the first five books of the Old Testament. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. So Jesus starts there and walks these two men through a Bible study showing how all these things point to him. We talked about this in the book of Colossians, chapter 2, verses 16 and 17, that it talks there about all the, all the events of the Old Testament, the festivals, the holidays, all those things are shadows. But Christ is the reality that casts the shadow. And so all these stories, we're going to look in this series today or this week, 
We're going to start next week with creation and fall, how God was with Adam and Eve in the garden. He was with them. But sin brought in a separation, a death, where they're kicked out of the garden. But there's a promise in that very chapter of 3 of the Messiah to come to be with them. We're going to look at Moses, how in Exodus chapter 3, Moses is called by God, Moses, I want you to go to Egypt and lead my people out of Egypt into the promised land. And what does Moses say? Ain't happening, God. I'm not doing it. I can't do that. I'm not capable. And God says, but Moses, I will be with you. And that promise of I will be with you is not his presence only, but his success. And then God reveals his name to Moses. And inherent in the name Yahweh, which is the old, transla- the old translation is Jehovah, in the, inherent in the name Yahweh is God is with you. We'll, we'll see that in a few weeks. We'll look at the story of Joseph, or excuse me, Joshua, who's Moses' successor. And God says to him, just as I was with Moses, I will be with you. And no man will stand before you all the days of your life. Be strong and courageous because I am with you. We'll look at Isaiah today and Isaiah in a few weeks again. How Isaiah is the one who, who prophesies the idea of Emmanuel, God with us. So this will be over this next month. We'll show how all the scriptures point to Jesus coming to be God with us. Cleopas and his friends, in their grief of the Messiah being killed, did not have eyes to see the beauty of God's design. You wonder afterwards, in fact, the story goes on in Luke 24, that Jesus gets to Emmaus and, and they invite him over to dinner. And he goes with them because, because he is disguised, though. He's, he's hidden their eyes from seeing his identity. They don't know that they're talking to the risen Lord. And then at supper, he takes a loaf of bread and breaks it. And their eyes are opened. And they see the Messiah. But we've been given the spirit of God. We've been given the fullness of God's scripture, revelation. So we have the information now. And we can see these truths. It's a beautiful truth that God is with us. But as I said, not just his presence. But he's with us to give us power to endure whatever you are going through. Anything you're going through, he is with you with the power to endure it. He is with you to protect you from the evil one. He is with you, gives you purpose every day when you wake up. I've, I've been with a lot of people at the end of their lives. And I remember one lady was in a, a convalescent center. She couldn't even get out of bed anymore. And she's saying, Tony, why is God leaving me here? Why doesn't he take me? And I said, because you still have purpose. Well, what is my purpose? I can't get out of this bed. And I said to her, every time someone walks through your door, a nurse or whoever comes through that door, your purpose is them. And God is with you to empower you to do that. It's something we must believe. And we'll come back to the idea how hard it is sometimes to believe that God is with us in the hardships of life. We'll come back to that. But first I want to start in Isaiah, Isaiah 7, Isaiah's prophecy of God with us. And I have to set up the background because all these passages we're going to look at and in the weeks ahead are, um, have their own historical context. They are prophesying to the Messiah coming. But they have their own historical context that ha- has to be understood first. So Isaiah 7, if you want to turn there. And at this point, this is... Um, 
there's a king, Ahaz. He's the king of Judah, which is the southern kingdom, which is he's the ninth generation of kings from David. So he's David's great, 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 great grandson. And, um, but at this point, the kingdom of Israel has been divided because they couldn't get along. So the northern kingdom broke off from the southern kingdom. So you have northern Israel and Judah. And so they're two different countries now, two different kingdoms, two different lineages of their kings. Northern kingdom Judah, excuse me, the northern kingdom of Israel never had a righteous king ever. They were always evil and turned from the Lord to idolatry. The southern kingdom Judah, who was the tribe of David and Benjamin, part of that, they had many kings that were not good either. Ahaz wasn't particularly good. He wasn't morally the, the sharpest tool in the toolbox. But um, there were several kings that were good. But these two now are at battle with each other regularly, these two kingdoms. At this point, Assyria is the rising kingdom in the eastern world. And Assyria is going to attack the northern kingdom of Israel. And above Israel is Syria. So if you know your geography, there's Syria, northern Israel, and Judah. The king Pekah of northern Assyria and the king of Israel joined together to do a pact to fight Assyria. But they want Judah to join them. They want Ahaz to join them. So there's now three kingdoms getting stronger to fight the Assyrians coming in. But Ahaz doesn't do it. He refuses. So they decide, the king of Syria and the king of Israel decide to come attack Judah to dethrone Ahaz and put their own king in place so that they then can join them in war. Does all that make sense? Well, Ahaz says, not happening. So northern kingdom and Syria attack Judah. And that's the context we have here. God sends Isaiah to Ahaz to tell him to trust in him, to trust in God, and not fear those two kings. Isaiah 7, 4 says, take care and be calm. Have no fear and do not be faint-hearted because of these two stumps of smoldering logs. Sometimes, you know, the prophets have very vivid imagery um, of, of people. It goes on. Yahweh says, trust me, Ahaz, trust me. If you are not firm in faith, he says, you will not be firm at all. So Ahaz now is at a watershed. Do I trust Yahweh to protect me from Israel and Syria? Or as he's thinking, and actually eventually does, do I make an alliance with Assyria against my brothers to the north? That's what he's being tempted to do. So this is the context now of the passage of Emmanuel, God with us. But Ahaz said, so Isaiah, Isaiah says, ask me anything. In fact, Yahweh, said, Isaiah, Yahweh says to Isaiah, ask for a sign for me, anything, as, as high as heaven, as low as Sheol, anything you want a sign to prove I'm with you, to prove I will, I will carry through in what I promised you, Ahaz, what sign do you need? But Ahaz said, this is verse 12, I will not ask, I will not put Yahweh to the test. Then Isaiah said, hear now, you house of David, is it not enough to try the patience of humans? Will you try the patience of my God also? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. If you won't ask for a sign, he's going to give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. The word Emmanuel in Hebrew is three words. In fact, the last word there, you see the E-L at the end? You see that? 
That's the shortened form of Elohim. Then the iman before it is a preposition with and a pronoun, us. So it's just three simple words. Elohim is with us. God is with us. So that's, that's going to be the sign. A virgin shall give birth to a son, and you'll call him Emmanuel. He will be eating curds and honey when he knows enough to reject the wrong and choose the right. For before the boy knows enough to reject the wrong and choose the right, the land of the two kings you dread will be laid waste. The Lord will bring on you and on your people and on the house of your father a time unlike any since Ephraim broke away from Judah when the two kingdoms divided after um, David's son Solomon died. He will bring the king of Assyria. But I want you to see something here. Verse 16. Can we put verse 16 back up? Before the boy knows enough to reject the wrong and choose the right, the land of the two kings you dread will be laid waste. It wasn't long after this that Assyria came in and wiped out Syria and northern Israel and took them into captivity. So this sign, which is given 700 years before Christ is born, was actually for the generation it was given to. So, so, so listen carefully. When Isaiah gave this prophecy, he wasn't first and foremost talking about the Messiah 700 years later. He was actually talking about a baby that's born in chapter 8. The very next chapter, Isaiah's wife has a baby. And that's the fulfillment of the promise. And the word Alma there, the word virgin is Alma. It means young woman of marrying age. Young woman, you would call her that before she has a baby. So she is a virgin, culturally speaking. Um, so there's this young woman who is getting married that will have a baby. So it's not a miraculous fulfillment at all in the context. But if you remember what Jesus said to the two disciples on the road to Emmaus, and that is that I start, he said, I started with Moses and took you through Scripture, and I show how all of it points to me. So there's this thing called double fulfillment or multiple fulfillments. You all live in the mountains. So, so many of you love to hike. If, if I, I moved to Carson last year, so I look up at the hills. As you guys live up here in the hills, I'm a, I'm a valley dweller now. And it looks like, it just looks like some succession of mountains rising up. But if I start hiking from Carson City and arrive up at Spooner Summit, which I've, I've, I'm doing sections of that hike, you know, a few at a time. Um, there's multiple like this. You think, you think there's just one, one horizon, one peak. But there's multiple peaks and valleys on the way. That's a lot like biblical prophecy. Something's prophesied and there's the first fulfillment. And then you see you go down the valley and you head back up and there's a second fulfillment. Sometimes even a third fulfillment before it's ultimately fulfilled in Jesus Christ. That's what's going on here. So, so I, I wanted to lay this out for you that there's a shadow in the Old Testament about Jesus. That shadow is God has given a sign to Ahaz about a baby being born and it's called Emmanuel, God with us. And if Ahaz would have held on to it and believed it, God would have been with Ahaz and delivered him from those armies. But in the end, because he sided with Assyria, he then became a vassal of Syria. 
and they became servants of the Assyrian army or the Assyrian government. They were no longer free to worship Yahweh. But if he would have trusted Yahweh, the promise of that baby is that I will be with you. And the promise of, is not just his presence. I just said that. The promise is his, for his protection. The promise is also for success in the mission he calls you to do. Very important to keep those ideas in mind as we go through this whole series this month. So are you with me? Now, in two weeks, three weeks, we're going to come back to this passage because in two chapters in Isaiah 9, 6, it talks about this child again. It says a child was given to us, a child in whom the government on his shoulders, the government rests. And this is that famous one that says, wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. That is talking about the future Messiah. So we'll see this thing is introduced in chapter 7 that is fulfilled in chapter 8 with Isaiah's baby being born. But in chapter 9, Isaiah lifts the promise to the future Messiah. So we'll see that in, in, in I think, three weeks we're going to do that sermon. But now I want to take you to Matthew to show how Matthew uses this verse. Matthew uses this verse completely ignoring, seemingly ignoring the context of Isaiah and saying this is about Jesus. So turn to Matthew chapter 1. The fulfillment of this in Jesus Christ. Matthew 1. This is the reality that casts the shadow. The story takes place. Matthew is telling the story of Joseph. The angel Gabriel comes to Joseph. He has just recently, in days past, gone to Mary, which is recorded in Luke chapter 2. And we'll do that one Christmas Eve. So the angel has announced to Mary that you're going to have the Messiah. The Holy Spirit will come upon you. The child will be called the, the son of the Most High. And he'll give him the, the, his kingdom, the, the kingdom of his father David. So all the promises there. Then, then Mary finds out she's pregnant. Because it says there, Mary goes, how, how can I have a baby? I've never been with a man. And God says, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. So you know the story. Well, then... Mary goes to Matthew, excuse me, Mary goes to Joseph and says, Joseph, I'm pregnant. Now, now we know this. This is not new. When a woman comes to her fiancé who she's never had relationship with and said, I'm pregnant, what's he going to say? What's he going to assume? Come on, let's call it what it is. She had relations with somebody else. So, so that's the story now with Matthew. Let's go to Matthew 1.18. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. In this culture, they're not married yet, but they're betrothed, which is a binding contract. So to get out of that binding contract, they have to get divorced. One of the purposes of this year-long engagement is to see if she's pure. Culturally driven by men, ladies. Well, Mary wasn't, so he thought. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David... Do not fear to take Mary as your wife. Now, why would Joseph fear to take Mary? Fear to take her. But what's the social ramifications for this? 
you know, that Joseph is now going to be known as the man who chose to marry who, to a girl who was pregnant by another man. So, you know, in his head is swimming out all, I love this woman, but she's cheated on me. So I can't marry her, so, but I don't want to shame her, so I'll divorce her quietly. Do not fear to take her as your wife. For that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. The angel confirms what Mary told him. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. Let's stop there. Let's look, um, let's look at verse um, about Jesus' name. Verse 24. She shall bear a son and shall call his name Jesus. Jesus' name in Hebrew is Yeshua. Okay, Yeshua. Yeshua is two words. The word Yahweh and the word salvation. So Jesus shall call him Jesus. Why? Because he will save his people from their sins. The very name Jesus is, is the idea of Yahweh saves. Yahweh is salvation. So Jesus' name gives us his identity. As we learn, he's the son of the Most High. He is Yahweh himself, if you understand the doctrine of the Trinity. Or if you have an awareness of the doctrine of the Trinity, I'm not sure any of us fully understand it. But God himself, Yahweh himself, has now become human. And he's come for a primary purpose of saving his people from their sins. So Jesus' very name, Yeshua, very common name, by the way. And, and do, you know, do you know what the name means in English? It, it, all the translation, if you went from Yeshua into Hebrew, then into English, it's Joshua. If you go from Hebrew into Greek into English, it's Jesus. So it's just names when they change languages, change pronunciations. But Jesus' name is the common name Joshua. So on the Christmas video, I teach on this, on the significance of the name Joshua. When God promises to Joshua, I will be with you. And that how actually that is foreshadowing Christ. The ultimate Yeshua. But just wait till that day. You won't need that. So first of all, Jesus' name means Yahweh saves. It reveals his identity and his mission. Then the quote, Isaiah 7, 14. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. Well, now we have this idea of a virgin, where in Isaiah, I suggested to you, the word in Hebrew, Alma, refers to a young woman of marrying age, of childbirth age. Um, I don't believe they were, Isaiah was talking about a miraculous virgin birth in Isaiah 7.14. But all the time, every time fulfillment comes, it tends to up the ante on it. In the New Testament... It's gone from Hebrew to Greek, and this is now the Greek word parthenos, which means virgin. So this is now talking about the miracle of the virgin birth. And so, so when it applies to Christ, all these prophecies up the ante and become more powerful. This young lady who is a virgin will conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. And, and people ask me, okay, so is Emmanuel Jesus' middle name? Because obviously the first name's Jesus, last name's Christ. And, and by the way, his last name's not Christ. It's his title. Do you know what Christ means? 
it's a translation of the Hebrew Hamashiach, which is the Messiah. So this is Jesus, the Messiah. Emmanuel's not his middle name. Jesus' name, if, if you were walking down the street and you saw Jesus, because the name Yeshua or, or Joshua is very common. He said, hey, Joshua, you know, four people turn around. But Jesus' name would be Joshua bar Yosef. Joshua, son of Joseph. That's his name. But Jesus, the Messiah, so it's his name, personal name, and his title, the Messiah. Well, where does Emmanuel fit into this? Emmanuel is not his personal name, but it is a designation that describes who he is. So what's my personal name? Thank you, you knew that. But I'm also a pastor. I'm also a husband, I'm also a father. Those are not my personal name, but they're designations given to me that, that clearly that help you define my identity. So G Emmanuel is not Jesus' personal name. It's a designation, a moniker given to him to tell you his identity. God is with us. So it's a wonderful story th that you can walk through. It goes on there then in the last verse. Um, when Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him and took his wife. But he knew her not until she had given birth to a son and he called his name Jesus. So he preserved her virginity till Jesus is born. And we learn later, and there's lots of controversy over this, but, but what seems clear to me is Jesus had several brothers and sisters that were born after Jesus was born through Joseph. Um, so there's the story to Joseph. God is with us. But is he with us in our daily struggles. See, when we think about this, we tend to think of God is with us in our salvation. He's come to save us from our sins, so someday I'll go to heaven and be saved from my sins. But what about today? What about today? I want to read to you Psalm 41, verses 1 through, excuse me, Psalm 42, 1 through 3. It's a psalm written by the sons of Korah. The first two verses are a song we used to sing 30 years ago. As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. And that, those of you that have been in the church a while, remember the song? As the deer panteth, panteth, it's King James, for the water, so my soul longeth after thee. Come on. It take, takes a lot of guts to sing to you guys, let me tell you. Elena can do it. I, that, that, that song, I always thought, this is just a psalm of praise to God. But as you read on, it's a psalm of lament. A psalm of lament is the idea, we did this over the summer, a lament is this. My life stinks, my enemies are winning, and God, you're not doing anything about it. Where are you, God? So that's what this psalm is, and I encourage you to go home and read Psalm 42, the whole of it. But it, there it says, my soul thirsts for God, verse 2, for the living God when shall I come and appear before God? Because he's now going to line out how his life really stinks. And he wants to say, God, where are you? Verse 3, my tears have been my food day and night. While they, that is my enemies, say all day long, where is your God? That's a question. When people see your life falling apart and they know that you claim to trust in God, they're going to say, where's your God now? 
Did he leave you? Is he really as good as you say he is? Is he really as powerful as you say he is? Maybe he doesn't care about you at all. Because your circumstances would suggest this God with you is not protecting you. He's not empowering you. Because your life is crumbling. How many of you have been there? We've called out to God, where are you? I want to tell you a story that's, that's a person I've met recently. His name's Andy McQuitty. And Andy is a retired pastor in, from Dallas, Fort Worth area. And another pastor put me in contact with him for a future ministry of, of he started a ministry of, of mentoring young pastors. And he wants me to be involved. So we've been doing Zoom meetings together with all the people involved in this. And it's been a really exciting time. But because of um, he wants to start this soon next year, and I want to tell him, Andy, so, so I, I said, can we talk? He said, let's Zoom each other. He likes to do Zoom. So we Zoomed, and I said, Andy, I, I want to I be involved in this ministry. It sounds wonderful. But um, I want you to know that I, I'm going through cancer treatment right now. My prostate cancer has come back. And I have to start hormone therapy and radiation. I, I think it will be fine. I, th I think it will stop me from ministering. Um, but I just want you to be aware of what's going on. And, um, and so he told me his story. He wrote a book. Let's put that picture of the book up. It's called Notes from the Valley, a spiritual travel log okay, um, through cancer. Andy, 10 years ago, was diagnosed with colon cancer. So he's telling me the story. Colon cancer, and they gave him an, stage four colon cancer, and they gave him 8% chance of living. And so two surgeries that removed 12 inches of his colon. His, he's still preaching during this time. His staff nicknamed him semicolon. <laughs> and um, so th this guy's got an incredible sense of humor. But he writes this story 10 years ago, believing there's a good chance he'll be dead in a few months. And so he took the psalm that says, though I walk through the valley of shadow of death, I will fear no evil because he is, God is with me. So this book is about walking through this valley of, of cancer. And, and sometimes there's calmness in the valley, but other times you're in the desert. And life is very hard. And, he, and, and so, so, so I bought the book. But I hadn't read it yet. This was like three weeks ago I bought it. Then, then last week, I couldn't sleep. The hormone therapy I'm on, um, one of the si symptoms is um, insomnia. And so I, I go to bed and lay there. <laughs> and so I, one night I got up at 2 o'clock, went downstairs, and I, I books on my iPad. I opened it up started reading. And um, it blew me away. The... The faith this man has in the midst of his incredible suffering from his surgeries to the utter destructive effects of chemotherapy on him. And some of the people in this room have been on chemotherapy. And it, it just wreaked havoc on this man. Unbelievable havoc. And so the book is about, about walking with God through all this pain, through the impending death. What do I do with my family? What about my church? Um, but in the end, I'm reading it and just enamored with the faith of this man, of trusting God. So I want to read a quote to you. 
So remember, we just read this thing, Psalm 42.3. My tears have been my food day and night. Or they say to me all day long, where is your God? This is where he picks up. Where is your God indeed? Historically, God's people have often been taunted with these very words. From Jesus on the cross, as they taunted him, hey, call out to your God, he'll save you. To Paul in a Philippian jail, to Christians in Nero's Colosseum. If you don't know what that's about, Paul was killed by Nero, and Nero, who was whacked in the head, would take Christians and tar them and, and stake them to posts and light them on fire as he rode his chariot through his garden. This is one sick puppy. In Nero's Colosseum, people of faith have always been derided for these words when times were tough. Where is your God? The worst part is that such jabs cause doubt in our own hearts and prod us to ask, yeah, where is my God? If you've recently asked that question upon entering the valley, you're in good company. I'll stop there for a moment. So let me read this. Let's read on. King David, man after God's heart, asked it. He asked it when Saul was trying to kill him. He asked it when his baby was dying. Righteous Job asked it. Job had everything taken from him. Everything, and then his health was taken from him. God, why? Fleeing Jonah asked it. Jeremiah, the weeping prophet, asked it. Jeremiah is witnessing the destruction of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple, which, which represents God on earth, and he says, where are you? Pursued by the wicked Jezebel, Elijah asked it. And that's an amazing story to me, because Elijah confronts 400 bales of prophet. Prophets of Baal, I switched him there. And, and you know the story where he calls fire down from heaven. He has the courage to confront 400 false prophets. The next chapter, Jezebel says, I'm going to kill you. He runs and hides in a cave, depressed. Where are you, God? He's more afraid of Jezebel, the queen, than he is of 400 prophets. Nonetheless, that's what he went through. Where are you, God? John the baptizer, the greatest among men, according to Jesus, asked it from Herod's dungeon. So John the Baptist is arrested, and in prison he actually sends one of his disciples to ask Jesus, are you the guy, or should we expect another? John the Baptist was losing faith that Jesus was the Messiah, even though he baptized Jesus and saw the dove descend and heard the voice of heaven, from God of heaven, but now in his imprisonment, is this really the Messiah? Where are you, God? Jesus himself asked it from the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's normal for God's people to call out, where are you? We've had Frank and Wendy's testimony here where they struggled with that. We have... Two ladies in our church who have breast cancer. You know about Marcia. I'm not allowed to tell the other person because she's not ready to reveal that yet. Um, who are struggling with this now. And possibly um, with the other gal, it's gone to her bones. Which is usually a death sentence. Over here is Amanda. I have her permission. Amanda has a rare form. A very rare, she told me the name of it. I can't repeat it. I can't say it. A rare form, a rare form of brain cancer. That's not curable, they say. 
And she is going through treatments that is miserable for her. And she has one primary hope. And what is that hope, Amanda? God to heal her. So she is going through the valley. There's people in here I don't know about that are going through this valley. Where is my God? Where are you, Lord? I thought, I thought when I became a Christian, you take care of everything. Well, we learned that's not true. Let me back up. It's not true that God protects us from the, the sicknesses of the world and the struggles we have. Those become major instruments in God working the character of his son in your life. And this book goes into that tremendously. It's something I taught for, for years. Let me keep reading. Here's what we must conclude from these biblical examples. All of God's children are sometimes schooled in the desert of God's seeming absence. As we've seen, even the Lord Jesus Christ wasn't spared the desert experience. So don't panic if you find yourself in the desert. It's just part of the valley. Everyone goes there sometimes. Those of you who are not in it or have never been in it, you say, could I endure it? Ladies, could I endure a breast cancer diagnosis? Men's, could I endure a reoccurrence of prostate cancer? Everyone, could you endure being told by the doctor, you have an inoperable or incurable brain cancer that's not likely to survive? Could you endure it? And I don't want to be trite at all, but I say absolutely you can endure it. Why? Because your God is with you wherever you go. It's a very important principle we must hold on to. It's not just that God is with you to deliver you to heaven when you die. It is about his constant presence in your life and empowerment to deal with every struggle you have. The salvation that Jesus Christ came to bring was not simply going to heaven, which is a beautiful truth. And everything in between is just tough luck. That's not what it is. God with us is a promise that is ultimately fulfilled in us in glory with him. But it is also a promise of his presence right now. He is with you, even if you don't feel like it. It's a promise of his power to endure promise of his protection from the evil one. Because who's the one whispering in your ear, where is your God? Satan himself, whether it's an agent or him himself. And purpose in every moment of every day, no matter what you have. Amanda was just telling me it's, she's struggling because of the, the, the radiation on the brain has now created a, a neuropathy in her body that's killing her brain. It'll become a time where, where her legs won't work anymore. It'll be a time when her eyes go blind because of the treatment. And Amanda, God is with you. No matter what is happening to you in the sin-sick world, God is there. And because Christ cried out on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? As a as he became human and stepped into our world, when we cry that, God raised him from the dead and took him to his right hand where some way and somehow you and I sit with him now in glory. And he's the one that is with us. In that Christmas video also, we will see from Matthew 28, 
where Jesus says, go and make disciples of all nations. Go tell everyone about me. And guess what, folks? He says, and I am with you till the end of the age. So from this moment forward, every moment of your life, everything he calls you to do, everything he, he has for you to experience, he is with you. Let me close on two verses. Deuteronomy chapter 2 to show you how this is projected in the Old Testament also. Deuteronomy chapter 2, this is the second generation of Israelites. The first generation all died in the wilderness because of their rebellion. This is their children now that Moses is speaking to in Deuteronomy, bringing to them now the hope of going into the promised land. And this is what it says. For Yahweh your God has blessed you in all the work of your hands. Look at this. He knows you're going through this great wilderness. These guys struggled greatly. He knows you're going through this great wilderness. So the guy, idea of knowing isn't some information. It's an idea of this relationship God had. He knows you and he knows what you're going through. These 40 years, Yahweh your God has been with you and you have lacked nothing. They may have, there's many times where they said, why did you bring us out here to kill us? Should have left us in Egypt. We were better off. It says here. He was with you the whole time, even when you didn't know it. He was with Joshua also. I can't wait. That's my Christmas video teaching on Joshua. Joshua, Joshua is Moses' successor. And Mo God says to Joshua, Joshua, I will be with you just I was with Moses. So be strong and courageous. Three times in that first few verses of Joshua chapter 1, three times be strong and courageous, be strong and courageous, be strong and very courageous. For I am with you, and I will neither leave you nor forsake you. It's an incredible truth. But it's interesting today. Maybe you're not suffering with, with um, cancer or, or whatever else. I know there's people in this room who are having great family pain because of, of relatives dying and, and struggling. Um, he's with you. He'll never leave you or forsake you. But the New Testament grabs that passage, I'll never leave you or forsake you, and applies it differently. Listen to Hebrews 13, 5. Keep your life free from the love of money. And be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. It's interesting, the writer of Hebrews takes this passage, a promise to Joshua about leading the children into the promised land but applies it to our anxiety over our finances. Can you see that every area of your life is covered by the concept that God is with you? Right down to your checkbook. Why do we stress so much about money? According to the book of Hebrews, God will never leave you or forsake you. He takes care of his own. Isn't that a beautiful truth? So wherever you are in your journey, some of you are on the mountaintop. The, um, that night when I woke up and I couldn't, couldn't sleep, would you agree that insomnia really, is, is, really stinks? Affirm that with me. But compared to chemotherapy and the effects of that, I'll take insomnia all night long. But when I went downstairs that day, I was frustrated and had a little pity party. You know? Why me? And what Andy says in his book, 
Why not you? So we, we act like we ha- God owes me some kind of blessing. What God owes me is what he's promised me. And you know what he's promised me? My salvation, which though is defined ultimately as he's conforming you and me to the image of his son. So when Christ returns, that comfort, that conforming process will be full, finished, and we will be like Jesus Christ. It says that in 1 John chapter 2 and 3, it says that when we see him, we will be like him. That's my salvation. It becomes complete when I'm conformed to the image of his son. And every experience he brings to my life, the blessings and the valleys, are designed me to conform, conform me to his son. And if I have that perspective, whether, as Paul says, I have nothing or I have plenty, whether I'm healthy and mountain biking or going through treatment for cancer, he is with me and he's working in me the character, the heart, and the motives of his son. And what a beautiful truth that is. So in this Christmas season, I want you to think about these stories. Read your Bible. As you read your Bible, look for this phrase, I am Yahweh, I am with you. It's all through the Old Testament. It's a beautiful truth. So let's pray. Father, thank you, Lord, that your word today and the way you crafted your word, Lord, to to be so deep and it will never mine the depths and beauty of your word. What we do understand, Lord, is incredible. And thank you for this truth today that you are with us wherever we go. You'll never leave us. You'll never forsake us, whether on the mountaintop, whether we're in the valley, in the desert. No matter what's going on in our lives, you are with us and you will accomplish your purposes. And I pray for the people in our church right now as I, as I know someone lost a brother this week in here. And I know that Amanda, uncertain what the future holds for her body. Um, I pray, Lord, for your power on them. Pray for Marcia that way she's going to start cancer treatment and, and surgery. Your power on them, Lord, to, to understand this and trust you and the protection from the lies of the evil one. And make your presence so known in their lives, Father. It's just a heavy presence of you being with them and in them and next to them and holding their hands. We thank you for this, Father, and then to have this truth drilled deep into our minds and into our hearts. So when we hit that desert and we wonder, where are you, God? These truths will flood back. We've renewed our minds and they won't, lies won't stay long. They're rooted out, Father. That's what we want. Root out the lies. We love you. We trust you've been honored today. All these things we pray in Christ's name.